Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor and a nurse who specialize in stroke field a series of questions submitted from listeners and Facebook followers. So when I talk to my patients about how to think of the signs and symptoms of stroke, I try to make it as basic as possible. And really what it is, is it's a sudden subtraction of a function that you had. I could see, suddenly I can't. I could use my hand, suddenly I can't. I could speak, I could understand, I could feel, so on and so forth. And we'll hear from a pediatrician who was recognized for helping to launch a community diaper bank. For anyone who hasn't talked and read about this as obsessively as I have, um, diaper need loosely is when a family doesn't have the financial resources to be able to purchase diapers to change their child as often as they'd like or need to to keep them happy and healthy and clean. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about a community diaper bank that was started with the help of a pediatrician from Upstate. But first, a doctor and a nurse who specialize in stroke are here to answer questions, and you're likely to learn something you didn't know before. Three things you might not know about stroke. Number one, people having a stroke usually are able to hear and comprehend what's happening around them. Number two, up to a third of patients who appear to be having strokes turn out to have other medical problems that mimic stroke. And three, many people have medical conditions of which they are unaware that increase their risk for stroke. We'll talk about all of this and more with two of Upstate's stroke experts. With me in the studio today are interventional neurologist Dr. Hesha Masood, who's an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and radiology, along with stroke outreach coordinator Josh Onion, who's a stroke certified registered nurse. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So just so listeners know, most of these questions were submitted on the Upstate Medical uh, University Facebook page. So they come from real people, including some HealthLink on Air listeners. And we're going to cover a lot of this in the interview, but I want listeners to understand from the beginning that Upstate really has distinguished itself in the area of stroke care. Um, to be designated a comprehensive stroke center is not just a fancy name. I know it was a long, involved process, but for patients and family members who may need the care someday. Josh, can you explain what that covers? Sure. Um, Being a comprehensive stroke center is really a coveted level of achievement for any medical center. Uh, There's different levels of achievement you can get for stroke centers. And the first one being a stroke ready center, basically you can treat a stroke patient in your emergency department, safely give them TPA and most likely transfer them to a higher level of care. TPA is a stroke medicine. Yes. Yep. That's a a thrombolytic. So it breaks up the clot if you are having that type of stroke. Uh, The next level is a primary stroke center. That's uh, throughout New York State. We see several of those. Uh, That's the next level of designation. You have to meet certain criteria to be a primary stroke center. Comprehensive stroke center is on top of that ladder. Uh, We have the most strict criteria for our stroke patients, the most stringent time targets, and the most quality quality mechanisms for process improvement. Uh, Being a comprehensive center means to us that we have interventional therapies as well as we can give the drug TPA. We can do it in a very timely manner. We also monitor the patients very closely post-procedure and post-TPA, report these metrics to New York State. There's a lot of things that we have to do to become comprehensive and maintain it. Uh, This past year has been really exciting for us. We just renewed our designation as Comprehensive Stroke Center with our our accrediting body, so really exciting for us. And we'll see throughout this interview, this will come out more, but um, we actually, Upstate has a a reach in in multiple counties um, with with stroke treatment. Um, I'll ask you more about that with telestroke later. Mm But um, Dr. Masood, one of your research interests on your biography is listed as stroke mimics, and I assume that's things that present a patient has symptoms that look like a stroke but it ends up being something else but um so my question is how often does a patient who appears to be having a stroke actually turn out to be having some other medical problem yeah and so you know it's it's a good question um up to one-third of the cases i would say uh, that we see turn out to be a stroke mimic and that's because there are a lot of medical conditions that can present with symptoms that are concerning for a neurologic deficit And any neurologic deficit that's new 
is a stroke until proven otherwise. And so, so what deficit, what, what does that mean? A difficulty deficit. talking, a difficulty um, behaving in the way that they used to, an altered mental status is what sometimes it's, it's referred to as. Sometimes it can be a patient who suffered a stroke, had a great recovery, but then something else medical is going on so much so that the symptoms of that old stroke start to bubble up a little bit more. Um, those are challenging because you have to treat every new uh, symptom complaint as potentially a new event. And so it's important that I communicate that, you know, the, the most important thing for someone who's suffering uh, some symptom that is concerning for a stroke is to present to the emergency room. Because if I can't suss it out that it's a mimic and the time is ticking, I will administer the clot-busting drug because the benefit certainly outweighs the risk. And there's lots of case series that we have in the literature that show us that if someone has administered the clot-busting drug, and in fact they don't have a stroke, there really isn't a consequence to it from a patient harm standpoint. And so that's why when we you know, educate our residents, we tell them, listen, when in doubt, give the medication. And some of the, the, the common stroke mimics are things like seizure. After a seizure, sometimes you can have a unilateral or one side of the body can be weak. That's called a Todd's paralysis. That potentially can mimic a stroke. Um, urinary tract infections notoriously can cloud people's sensorium or their mental status. And is that a language impairment from a stroke or is that a urinary tract infection? That's something that you sort of uh, figure out uh, when the patient arrives. Um, you can have, very rarely there can be conditions where there is a non-organic cause, meaning you don't find any problem with the brain and it may be something that is in the realm of, the, of, a, of a mental or psychiatric issue. Um, with that being said, I, 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 I try not to uh, have that bias me because, you know, everyone can, any person can have a stroke and everybody reacts to the symptoms of a stroke differently. So being tearful or being stoic doesn't necessarily tell me whether or not this is a real stroke or not a real stroke. It comes down to the neurologic exam, an objective assessment, looking at vitals, looking at imaging, so on and so forth. And then again, when in doubt, treat. So this would be a good time to review the signs and symptoms of, yeah. of stroke. Yeah. So when I talk to my patients about how to think of the signs and symptoms of stroke, I try to make it as basic as possible. And really what it is, is it's a sudden subtraction of a function that you had. I could see, suddenly I can't. I could use my hand, suddenly I can't. I could speak, I could understand, I could feel, so on and so forth. And we have certain scales that we use uh, in, the, you know, in, in EMS when responding to uh, a stroke emergently that sort of focus on the most common symptoms that you see in a stroke. And that's related to the majority of the blood going to the front of the brain. And the front of the brain has the language function, the motor function, which is your ability to move your arm, your ability to feel, things like that. And so that's why most of the strokes occur in that circulation, and most of the scales look at those common symptoms. So paramedics are trained to look for that. Absolutely, and there are a couple of different scales that are used, and they have a common thread, and there are some additional symptoms that are being added to them to try to characterize bigger strokes from smaller strokes. Okay. So once the patient makes it to the emergency room, what do you do to diagnose whether it is a stroke? I think the first step is to kind of define what a stroke is. And a stroke can be of two types. It can be because of a blockage to an artery, and so the part of the brain that's not receiving blood is dying, and that's 80%. And then 20% is actually a burst in an artery, and that can be a large or a smaller artery, and that's too much blood, that's a bleed. And so those are both strokes, but when we talk about it, we always think of the clot because that's the 80% uh, of strokes. So the first step is to figure out which kind of stroke you're dealing with. You can't suss it out based on the symptoms because brain damage is brain damage. Um, what, it has to, what you do is you get a CAT scan and the CAT scan will tell us uh, if the patient has a bleed or if they have uh, a stroke. And it really specifically, it just excludes the possibility of a bleed. That's all it does. You get additional scans later down in your uh, diagnostic reasoning that tell you uh, what kind of, what kind of um, clot it could be. So the scans are essential? The, 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 that first uh, CAT scan is essential because it puts you on one of two different care paths. Okay. Well, one of the questions we received is about TIAs and RINDs. Mm -hmm. um, what are those, and how do they how do they relate yeah. to stroke? So, so these are both terms that relate to neurologic symptoms that occur suddenly, and 
resolve within a period of time. And between a TIA and an RIND, they use different time frames as to how they defined how long you can, uh, how long a period before they'll say, okay, this has not resolved in our definition time frame. Um, there's another entity called a TSI, which is essentially a stroke that's occurred with brain damage seen, uh, but the symptoms have reversed. And I think that that's the more important thing to focus on is um, whether or not there is brain damage from the event, as opposed to whether or not the symptoms improved within an arbitrary time frame of six hours, 24 hours. I think those were definitions that had to be made in, a, in an era where we didn't have the technology that we have now and the ability to demonstrate tiny strokes that don't have so much of a clinical manifestation. But make no mistake, any stroke is brain damage and any stroke needs to be treated. We gotta figure it out and prevent another stroke. And oftentimes the TSI or the TIA or the RIND, these, you know, these, these terms, they are harbingers of a bigger, badder stroke down the line. And so it's really your opportunity as a physician to diagnose why the stroke happened and to prevent the bigger one that's coming down. It's a preview so it's of coming a, attractions. It is a preview. Yeah. So if someone who has one of these tiny strokes needs to... Yeah. I would say if you have a neurologic symptom that is sudden and onset, if it improves or not is irrelevant to me. I want you to come to the emergency room immediately and I want you to be worked up for it. And if it's something minor, you may get your work up outpatient in the clinic. You may not need to be admitted. But the first step is not to make that assumption. And I've seen people wildly fluctuate from having big symptoms to nothing, and then big symptoms back and forth, and found you know pretty significant uh, deficit eventually. So you know, again, if you're having stroke symptoms, um, present immediately. And if it gets better before you get here, great. But we still got to work it up. And that's something that uh, Dr. Masood talks about is the, the stroke, the classic stroke symptoms. We teach the community FAST, the acronym FAST. It's very easy to remember, very common. It's endorsed by the AHA and taught across the world, essentially. So uh, to, re to reiterate, F-A-S-T, face being a facial droop, uh, A being arm or leg weakness, S being speech, speech trouble or difficulty, and T being time, time to call 911. So these TIAs and mini strokes that Dr. Masood talked about, uh, often our patients will see resolving symptoms on themselves and their loved ones, and they'll neglect to call 911. They'll think the stroke is fixing itself or this isn't that big of a problem. Part of our community awareness is to, uh, what I say, call for all. So whether your symptoms resolved or you're, they're still concerned, don't try to figure it out on your own. Let us figure it out for you. So I teach that to the community as well as EMS, uh, this call for all mantra. So despite the time you last saw yourself normal, despite what you look like now, if there was something wrong, call 911, let us figure that out for you. That's what we're here for. Um, that message is getting across pretty good. We see a lot of TAs coming in recently, an increased number specifically, which kind of helps us understand that they are understanding this fast message and they are, all, they are calling 911. So. Okay, well that's and, good to know. And it's yeah. the American Heart Association that endorses American Heart, that. American Stroke Association, yes, yeah. they collaborate. Well, let me ask, when a person is having a stroke, can they hear and comprehend what is going on and being said around them? Oftentimes, yes, they can. Now, the, you know, it really does depend, though, on which part of the brain is affected. It's very rare for a stroke to cause a hearing impairment, um, but it, it can be seen uh, where a stroke can affect your ability to comprehend or your ability to express yourself. Can you tell by, I mean, how do you tell if the person understands what's happening? We have a neurologic exam that do. we do, and we have them uh, follow some commands, simple and complicated, one-step and two-step, three-step commands, and then we're able to kind of figure out how much uh, the patient can understand. And assuming they do understand, is it important to address them during the treatment? Absolutely. I would say it's important to address every patient, whether or not you're able to uh, objectively assess that they can understand. I would assume, and, and I make this assumption and tell my trainees that anytime you enter a patient's room, whether this is someone who's on the floor or someone in the neuro ICU who may be you know, you know, sedated, uh, is to address them and to talk them through the exam as you're doing it and to make the assumption that they can hear everything. All right. Well, we've heard how important it is to call 911 at the first sign or that someone may be having a stroke. But in the time it takes the ambulance to get there, what should the loved one do or not do for the person that, that may be having the stroke? Is You know, for a stroke, it really the big difference maker is alerting uh, emergency services to get the patient here as quickly as possible. 
uh, it's not the kind of um, situation where you know we want you to stabilize the patient's neck or position them in a certain way to avoid a complication early on. I think it's intuitively important to pay attention to airway, how the patient's breathing, uh, if there is any evolution in the patient's exam that you notify 911 again, uh, that kind of thing. But there's nothing uh, specific that I think uh, is a difference maker uh, other than you know, alerting EMS and, uh, and getting the patient here as quickly as, quick as, possible. as possible. All right. Some this questions is... that we're going to ask, though, when we do see you, we're going to want to know any medications that you're taking at home. So if you are with somebody that's had a stroke, uh, if you have a written list of medications or at least know the pharmacy where they fill their prescriptions, that's good information to have. Um, also, the time that the patient was last seen normal is the major time component of this. This is the first question that EMS is gonna ask you and the first question that we're going to ask you too. There's treatment modalities that are very specific to that last known well time. So last known well is when the last time that you were seen normal. So um, I was making my breakfast and all of a sudden my face started to droop on the left at 9 a.m. My last known normal is 9 a.m. So it's pretty easy. Just look at the clock when you see a stroke symptom. That's your time to start that's and that's your time to call 911. Right. Well, good right. to know. We'll be right back to continue our discussion about stroke. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about stroke with stroke neurologist Dr. Hesha Masood and neuronurse Joss Onion from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. Now, for each of the patients that you care for who have a stroke, um, are you always able to pinpoint the reason why they had the stroke? You know, sometimes um, I would say in up to 20 to 30 percent, we, we, we're not able to immediately identify uh, why the stroke happened. Um, we have a lot of things that we do in the outpatient setting uh, for prolonged monitoring that helps us identify things in a delayed fashion. For instance, an irregular heart rhythm may not be persistent but be a risk factor, and it may take us time to kind of catch it, uh, and that's what I mean by doing prolonged monitoring. Uh, but there are some patient populations where you don't really find anything that, that grabs you as to why this patient had a stroke. Usually that's a younger population, in that population, we found that maybe 40% of them can have something called a PFO, which is essentially a potential door between two chambers of the heart that really sort of exclude the vein blood from the arterial blood, and that has implications for stroke mechanisms. Is that a heart abnormality? It's uh, it, one in five people has it, and it's usually inconsequential. Huh. Uh, but you know, my, the point being that yeah, there there are certain associations that we see in this. Um, group of patients where we don't know exactly why there's a stroke and that's an ongoing area of of research and um, we keep looking you know well i've heard of people having a stroke during sex is sex dangerous for no i mean so sex the physical as far as i understand i think the physical exertion required in sex, on average is around two flights of stairs um, and really the way that it works is the way that i think about it is you know, any time that you're going to have a period of exertion, if you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, um, then maybe that will have a lower threshold for, you know, something bad to occur if you were to be under a period of stress. With that being said, you know, it is a form of exercise and it is an essentially important part to returning to society and, and getting back to what you're, what you're used to doing. And so um, I would say absolutely uh, not to consider it at all as a risk factor or as something uh, that uh, hinders you in any way after having a stroke. You should absolutely try as much as you can to get back to a normal lifestyle and not worry about it. But there are some risk factors um, that put a person at higher risk for stroke, right? If you have uncontrolled risk factors like high blood pressure, absolutely. I mean, that, but that goes for any kind of physical exertion is your thresholds are lowered if you have uncontrolled risk factors. And then it's just a matter of a precipitant that crosses that threshold. Um, and controlling those risk factors increases your threshold so that you're more protected. 
So it's more about risk factors than it's actually about the activity. And it seems to me some people may have risk factors that set them for a higher risk for stroke and not know they have them, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. High blood pressure is a classic. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a silent killer in the background. Another one is uh, an irregular heartbeat that may present itself uh, in the background without you having any clinical manifestation, and that irregularity can predispose someone to having a stroke. Sometimes we, we discover these things at the time of the stroke, and it's a new onset problem. So I wanted to ask you about aneurysms. Are they ever discovered in the brain before they burst? I would say in most instances, because of the technology now um, that we're getting CAT scans in more and more people, um, we're able to uh, diagnose these aneurysms before they rupture. And the good news is, is that most aneurysms will not rupture. Uh, we have uh, some clinical variables that we look at, some things that have to do with how the aneurysm looks, where it's oriented towards, the shape of it, so on and so forth, that help us determine a risk profile to determine which aneurysm should be preemptively treated and which ones can be watched um, for interval growth, which would then precipitate a treatment. And that would be someone who had like a CT for some other reason. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, sometimes when we're evaluating patients who have stroke, what do we do? We get a picture of your brain. We also get a picture of your arteries. That completes a stroke workup. And oftentimes we find incidental things when we look at your arteries. And that can be in the brain, the neck, and the chest. Interesting. Um, what's the youngest person you've ever cared for with stroke? So I don't do pediatrics. So I think the youngest I did was a pretty adult-looking 16-year-old, um, and that required some consent from the family, and that was a while ago. The oldest patient I've taken care of recently was over 100 years old. I think he was 104 years old. We gave him TPA, and he went home a couple of days later. He did really well. A and TPA man. is the, the clot buster medication. That's the clot medication. medication. So, um, it, Typically, is recovery more difficult the older you are? Or? Yeah, I, I would say because, you know, depending on how bad your deficit is, we have specialty rehab services that will come in and evaluate you and they'll determine how many hours a day that you can commit or are able to sustain for rehabilitation. And the older we are, the less amount of time that they can do. And so that's why I think in an elderly population, it's even more important to get that early management to save them from having to go to rehab, which is counterintuitive to what it used to be, which is like, oh, no, 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 they're too old. Maybe we shouldn't expose them. It's like, well, no, because they're not going to do well in a nursing home. So, in fact, you should be more aggressive if that patient is, in fact, up to that point independent. Okay. Then it's justified, absolutely. How do you talk to loved ones about um, the damage from a stroke and whether it's permanent or, or how permanent it is? Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, we have brain scans. There's a, there's a sensitive sequence on the MRI scanner that allows us to quantify the burden of stroke. And it's nice to show patients and their family members the picture of where the damage is in relation to what a normal brain looks like. That helps facilitate conversations. Um, the neurologic exam is a big determinant for me about functional recovery. Intuitively, the worse your exam is up front, the less the possibility is of a full recovery down the line uh, and vice versa. And so the other thing is um, I don't prognosticate for functional recovery early because we know there are lots and lots of variables uh, that uh, come into play after discharge in terms of sustained rehab, quality of rehab, engagement, so on and so forth that can really be a difference maker. And so I typically see our patients 90 days from the event, and that's when we can start to see the patients plateau in functional recovery, and then I can start to give them an idea of what they may kind of settle at. Um, but that's not to say that uh, rehab beyond that point is not beneficial. You mentioned variables. Is some of it um, based on how much the patient you know, works in rehab? And yeah, absolutely. Here, you know, You asked a great question about, you know, can patients understand that they're having a stroke and comprehend? And in the patients that can't, they do poor, poorly in rehab because guess what? They don't think there's a problem. And so they don't engage in the rehabilitation. Um, so yeah, absolutely, patient engagement's a big piece yeah. of it. Well, I've got some more questions, but first let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hesham Masood and neuro nurse Josh Onion about stroke care. And we're going to turn now to some questions that are a bit more technical. Um, there's been a recent trend in urban and rural settings uh, with mobile stroke units, um, ambulances that are specially outfitted for uh, stroke care. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the efficacy of this trend. 
So the, the idea behind a mobile stroke unit is a, a, a large ambulance that's equipped with uh, a neurologist via telemedicine generally or present, as well as the capabilities to treat your stroke with that TPA, the clot-busting drug. In order to do that, you need to have a CAT scanner on this ambulance also. So if you can picture the size of this rig, as we had a portable CAT scanner and a, a nurse and a driver and a, a technologist, uh, there's a lot that goes on to make this work. So we're seeing larger cities across the nation uh, using these mobile stroke units to initially diagnose a patient in the field. Do you have a, a bleeding type of stroke or do you have a stroke that requires the clot buster? That's really the, the main purpose for this type of rig. Now, uh, we've, we've talked about it for the Syracuse area. We're challenged geographically because we have the city of Syracuse and then we have the North Country that we're also responsible for being a comprehensive center in Syracuse. Um, there's a lot of geographical barriers, snow, etc., that might limit the use of this mobile stroke unit. It is something new. I'll let Dr. Masood give his feels on this also. Yeah, I mean, I think anything that allows us to triage you to the care path early and get you early management is always going to be a positive thing in a rapidly progressive disease like a stroke. Uh, like Josh was saying, there, there are considerations, though, in relation to the resources that are required and if it works for every geography. And, you know, like you said, I think the first one in America was in Houston. And, you know, the roads in Houston are different than the roads in Syracuse. Um, this all kind of started with an experience in Germany with their mobile stroke units. And, and yeah, there is, there is some data that, to show us that there are shorter treatment times when you employ um, this um, ambulance. Um, but again, you know, are, is the ambulance always available? Is if it's tied up in one case, then what do you do for the other case? So on and so forth. Or even finding that when you des in, in the, at least in that German trial, you know, they had weeks that, that you, they called the, the mobile stroke unit STEMO. So ste you had STEMO weeks on, STEMO weeks off, but they found that on both weeks, they were doing better. But it's no question that quicker um, treatment equals oh, better Oh, absolutely. Outcomes. And anything we can do to facilitate that uh, is, is going to be a, a huge difference maker. But what is Upstate doing already um, to help facilitate quicker treatment? Yeah, so, um, you know, Josh had mentioned that, you know, these rigs often employ either a, a person, you know, a neurologist who's present and the it's it's hard to, to sort of monopolize the neurologist's time in the in the in the ambulance because not all response is going to be stroke related. Um, so there's telemedicine, uh, which is essentially a video connection, uh, sort of like a FaceTime in the ambulance, um, and and then you're able to talk with a specialist like a stroke neurologist, and that's something that uh, Upstate has worked uh, pretty pretty hard on, and, and Josh specifically has helped maintain and grow a. Um, a telestroke uh, network with uh, with lots of spoke hospitals. I think we're up to 11 right now. Yeah, we have 11. Uh, mostly throughout the North Country, a couple south of Syracuse. And the idea behind, and the mission behind our telemedicine services is to really make sure that these spoke sites, emergency departments could function similarly that we function in Syracuse. Have the neurology consult available within a certain amount of time period of the patient arrival to make sure the patient gets the, the clot-busting medication timely. And what we've been able to do is really shorten the time that the patient arrives in the ED to the time they see our neurologist. Uh, so we're seeing great treatment times from these spoke sites that don't see very many strokes, but they're doing a really nice job with what they see with the help of our telemedicine docs. Uh, we're utilizing air medical often, as well as ground transport to get the patients to Syracuse if they are requiring uh, the next level of therapy, that clot retrieval, uh, or a different evaluation from one of our neurologists on site in Syracuse. We work pretty closely with the regional resources, hospitals, uh, and EMS companies to make sure everything's kind of cohesive across all of central and northern New York. So anyone who's having what appears to be a stroke can access through the hospital a, a stroke neurologist from upstate basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, we have, we have a, a network and there's a protocol and uh, that protocol is initiated by the ED provider in the spoke hospital based on the time of onset and the therapeutic window. Really, the biggest advantage of having telestroke is for the patients who are presenting within that therapeutic time window for that clot-busting medication, which is readily available at all hospitals and all EDs. And so that's why we have sort of offered this time-based, we'll turn on the screen, you'll get a neurologist, they'll help you decide if that patient is a candidate, if it's safe, how to administer it. And then we do an exam, and then based on that, we can triage to uh, even ele more elevated uh, level of care.
All right. Well, we got a question about the um, consequences of using or not using this clot busting drug TPA. Yeah. Um, because there's risks with using it, right? Yeah. So the original trial in 1995 quoted a 30% benefit at 90 days. So this is not a typical Lazarus effect that you're you're doing. This is an investment later down the line in terms of functional recovery. There's a 6% chance of bleeding. 3% of that uh, can be fatal. Uh, so the with that being said, um, the risk benefit with those numbers in a patient who's having a stroke favor administering the medication. The problem if you don't get the medication is you're essentially leaving it up to the natural history of that stroke. And depending on how large the territory is at risk, how this stroke wants to evolve or not evolve, strokes are often in the first 24 hours, they're dynamic, they're not static. And if that's the case, uh, then you could actually cheat yourself out of a better functional recovery uh, if you uh, get too afraid of, of the numbers that are quoted. I would say if you're having a stroke within four and a half hours, you should get IV TPA. Okay. And one other question, uh, medication question. This is about the long-term side effects of warfarin or Coumadin. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's also a clot-breaking well, medicine, right? So Coumadin, which also known as warfarin, is, is not a clot-busting medication, uh, it's not something that we would give when someone's having a stroke to, to remove clot or break down clot. It's actually something that we use to thin the blood enough that in certain conditions where patients have a risk for forming clot spontaneously, you increase the threshold for that to happen. So you're, you're making the blood so thin that it's hard for a disease process like an irregular heart rhythm or thick blood from a genetic predisposition to actually form a clot and go up to the brain and cause a stroke. Now, Coumadin, or warfarin, uh, is an old drug, and it is cumbersome to deal with because to know that it's working, you wanna have your patients within a certain range, uh, uh, and that is determined by periodic blood tests, so it's really a lifestyle. And then the medication interacts with everything under the sun, so you can be under-therapeutic or over-therapeutic, and if that's the case, then you can be under-treated or over-treated, and if you're over-treated, there's a risk of bleeding. And so thankfully, we're moving away from Coumadin in the most common indications for its use, specifically irregular heart rate and uh, certain conditions where there are clots in the veins, to these newer medications, which you know, were called novel, but uh, you know, now not so novel because we've been using them for a while, so they're called direct oral anticoagulants, Lots of advertisements on TV. I'm sure uh, the audience may have heard of some of them. But those represent an advancement in, um, in, in the preventing strokes uh, for, certain, for certain cases because they're safer drugs for the most part. They don't require monitoring. Um, so you know that if you're taking it, it's working. Uh, less bleeding risk and more prevention of stroke. So it's something that you're seeing more and more patients are, oh, are being That's good to on. know. Yeah. Well, this has been very informative, and I want to thank you both for the, making the time to be here and do this interview. Thank you. My guests have been stroke nurse Josh Onion and stroke neurologist Dr. Hesha Masood from Upstate's Comprehensive Stroke Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a pediatrician who started a diaper bank on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The journal Contemporary Pediatrics named an upstate pediatrician as a pediatric change maker this year, and we're very happy to have Dr. Winterberry with us in the studio today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You uh, did your pediatric residency at Upstate from 2010 to 2013 um, in Syracuse when 50% of the Syracuse children were living in poverty, and Syracuse had the highest concentration of poverty for black and Hispanic children in the country. And for some people, that might be a reason not to settle in Syracuse. But for you, 
that was part of what made you want to stay. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, when starting my residency, I had the opportunity to work in the same clinic as a trainee and really learned the value and the joy of taking care of the families of Syracuse. And um, I would argue that the poverty experience in Syracuse is a challenge, not a detriment to our population. And I think these families are actually really wonderful to take care of. They're grateful people, they're resilient people, and they're people who, just like any other parents, care about their children and want them to grow up to be healthy, happy adults. And I think um, part of what contributes to the beautiful patchwork of our city is that you get to take care of kids from sort of all walks of life, but also all, all parts of the world. Um, and it's really nice to take care of a city full of kids who come from places where they've experienced adversity, but they're coming here to uh, start the rest of their lives. Well, as a doctor, that's, I imagine, got to be gratified. It seems like you've got a position where you are needed. Absolutely. can make a big impact. Absolutely. And I think any pediatrician makes an impact in the life of any child, really, but there are very concrete things that we can uh, ask a family about, talk to the family about, guide them on, and um, try to make a difference in the very early days of their lives when the building blocks are being put together for the kids' later success. Neat. Well, this um, award or recognition, the Pediatric Changemaker, that ties into your um, work with a diaper bank. So talk to me about what made you want to start a diaper bank and, and how it works. Um, so as a trainee, I think I was sort of given a crash course of sorts in what diaper need meant. Um, and for anyone who hasn't talked and read about this as obsessively as I have, um, diaper need loosely is when a family doesn't have the financial resources to be able to purchase diapers to change their child as often as they'd like or need to to keep them happy and healthy and clean. Um, when I was a resident, I took a call on a weekend night from a mom who said, my child's had a stomach bug. And so expectedly, we've gone through our whole supply of diapers for the month very quickly, and I don't have anything to buy more. And so my child's in a plastic bag. What can you do for me? And you can imagine that's a devastating call as a mom to have to make, and I felt even worse that I didn't have anywhere to point her at the time. And it's not as a criticism of the city. It just wasn't really built into the infrastructure, I think, recognized locally at the time that this was a need for some of our families. Um, and so... I had that story in the back of my mind, and then in the that same journal that I was lucky enough to be featured in, Contemporary Pediatrics had an article about the concept of a diaper bank and what it meant. Uh, that was written by a woman who um, uh, runs Diaper Bank National Network, um, and she introduced the idea that some communities put together resources for families to be able to go to just like a food bank and get diapers. Um, and so that started in my office through a grant from the Upstate Foundation in a very small way. If you can picture my office um, full of stacks of diapers, that's how it worked in the beginning, but we realized that our need in clinic quickly outpaced what I was able to provide. And so thankfully- So originally the diaper bank was your office. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I stress this is a very small operation. This was um, literally myself and one of the nurse practitioners, Wendy Broughton, in our office going to a local um, business and buying ridiculous amounts of diapers and bringing them back to our clinic in her minivan. Um, but thankfully, there was a like-minded group of women in our community who started a much more formal, larger, sustainable Central New York diaper bank that we've been lucky enough to partner with um, since November of 2016. They started in May 2016. We came on board in November, and they've been able to provide us a much more sustainable supply. So why is diaper need so high? It's got to be tied to poverty, right? Why is, it, why is the diaper need so high, though? Um, it's tied to poverty, but it also can be experienced by families who wouldn't be thought of as traditionally impoverished um, from time to time. So um, diapers as a commodity are relatively expensive. The typical person who has a diapered child spends about $100 a month on diapers, and that's not an insignificant cost, but that's um, compounded by families who are otherwise regularly in poverty. Um, because they're not able to buy diapers in bulk if they don't have a large amount of disposable income to buy. And so the cost per diaper goes up considerably if you're buying in smaller quantities. Um, or they're not able to get online deals if they can't buy with a credit card, etc. Um, and 
they experience ongoing need because the expense of diapers is not supported by other federal assistance programs. Um, things like WIC, SNAP, and TANF um, supplement families financially for things like food, housing, et cetera, but none of those address diaper costs, and so that really comes out of a family's probably small discretionary Well, that's why I was funds. wondering whether like food stamps or whatever would cover the, it's a necessity, but um, it's not covered by any of the government programs. Then you have that exactly right. Diapering wow. your child is absolutely a basic need and something every parent should be able um, to feel like they can provide for their child, even if they need support in doing so, and it's currently not supported. Well, if I understand correctly, since 2016, um, the diaper bank has distributed more than 300,000 diapers in the Syracuse area. Um, that's a lot. So how does this work? Does someone go does someone have to learn about the diaper bank and go there and say that they need diapers or how do they how do they get connected so it depends on which agency a uh, community partner agency the um, family is um, receiving their diapers from but just as you said um, the awareness has to be out there in the community and a surprising number of families who could benefit from a diaper bank are not aware of them. That's nationally, not just a local issue. So one of the aims of the diaper bank is both to address diaper need by providing the diapers themselves, but also to make people aware of what's out there. Um, so the Central New York Diaper Bank partners with um, around 15 agencies in the community, and that can range from food banks to churches to the rescue mission. We're just one of the partner agencies. Um, for families who come to our clinic, because we have this wonderful sustaining supply from the Central New York Diaper Bank, it allows us to screen families at their well-child visits for diaper needs. So if you have a child under three, while my wonderful nurses are putting them in a room, they ask the families if that's something um, they're experiencing. And if they screen positive, then they s receive a supply of diapers right there in clinic the same day. They also get information from us about what other community agencies are out there that they can um, utilize if they have need outside of times they're in our office. So they're, they're screened to make sure that there really is a need and they're not, I mean, anyone would probably be happy with a small child, be happy to receive diapers, but you screen to make sure that there's a bona fide need. And I would argue um, that really any family qualifying for other assistance programs may be experiencing diaper need at some, if not all times. So it's really not hard to determine if someone is eligible, but also remember that some families who might have on paper a really impressive income can have circumstantial financial difficulties that would make it more challenging and experience diaper need. And we really haven't found there have been, there's been anyone sinister in the community coming to get diapers that didn't need them. It's really been a positive experience. The um, potential naysayers, I think, have been quieted by the fact that this really is a need and the families have, when surveyed, demonstrated this has been a tremendous both mental and physical benefit for their families. There's a tremendous stress reduction when you know that you can provide diapers for your baby. And let me uh, tell listeners that uh, they can get more information at cnydiaperbank.org online. Um, and also, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Winter Berry. Um, and I have some other questions for you. I read um, an article where you said that you and the other faculty here at Upstate train residents to practice pediatrics in a culturally humble way. Um, what does that mean? Uh, we want residents to recognize that a family's choices, both social family values, the way they approach medical care, and their life experience up until the time they walk in our door may be very different than ours, but no less valid. And by ours, I mean those in the medical establishment, that, not that we're homogenous people otherwise, but um, that by virtue of becoming a physician or provider, your life may look differently than the families you're caring for. And um, that understanding the families you're caring for helps you provide better care to them. It also means understanding that for a socioeconomically challenged population, there are things that unless you recognize them and address them may be affecting their decision making, their ability to, ability to carry out care plans, etc. Um, the catchphrase for this is social determinants of health. So things about the family's um, life outside the office that um, may place stressors or trauma on them or their children and um, how they're able to interact with the medical system. 
So social determinants of health is kind of a big phrase, but those are things like um, whether a family has transportation or adequate food, right? Absolutely. So things that um, people less economically challenged might take for granted um, can really make it difficult for a family, um, even from the beginning, to bond with a child. So if um, you can imagine if a mother, to use the example of diaper need, is worried she may not be able to diaper her baby, that stress can be um, quite impactful. Uh, things like transportation to and from visits, um, having stable and safe housing, being able to keep the utilities running, food insecurity, um, families who are even those who are supported by federal assistance programs um, still may experience food insecurity um, in a way that can be quite challenging for them. Uh, let me ask you this, with the with Diaper Bank um, in operation, is that designed to help um, relieve some of the poverty in Syracuse, or do you see that getting better at all? Um, I think the solutions to poverty are really complex and a multi-pronged issue. Um, I see the diapers we're supply, supplying to families as a means to a, a specific end. So obviously our, our supplemental supply of diapers is not solely solving problems for any family, but what it might make the difference of is allowing a parent to drop their child off at daycare. So if you have enough diapers to send your child to daycare, you can then go look for work or go to school or complete an educational program or go to work yourself. Um, and one might say those are potential benefits, but do they actually bear out? And thankfully, um, the Diaper Bank of Connecticut and University of Connecticut have done recently some great research that objectifies this. Um, they studied families who were receiving a diaper supply um, in the in their area in Connecticut and were able to demonstrate um, reduced instances of things like diaper rash and urinary tract infections and therefore saved medical costs and increased economic outcomes for the families themselves. So if you can go to school, go to work, finish whatever degree you're working on, um, it does make a very tangible difference for the family. And I think that's only one way to go about it. There are lots of um, systemic issues to be addressed. Um, to address poverty in our city. Um, we're just trying to sort of on a child-by-child -child basis make one less thing stressful for families who may otherwise be struggling. Wow. Well, it's certainly good news that you're um, involved in this, and I appreciate you being here to talk about it. Um, my guest has been Dr. Winter Berry, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nursing students and medical students learn how to deliver bad news. They are told to choose their words carefully, to recognize that each patient processes the news differently. Sarah Perkle Hughes, who teaches literature at Middle Georgia State U, gives us a wonderful example of this in her essay, When the Doctor Says Cancer. You hear not cancer. Funny how the brain rejects the word cancer, two syllables that can change the trajectory of your life so much that your brain inserts a third to negate the whole meaning. Minutes later, when the doctor uses words like oncologist, chemotherapy, mastectomy, you begin to doubt the initial relief you felt at not cancer. She hands you a pamphlet entitled Coping with Breast Cancer. The words sit in a row like birds on a telephone wire, visible but utterly out of reach. You say, wait, so it is cancer? And the doctor nods, yes, it is cancer. You have cancer. It is aggressive. Treatment must begin immediately. You feel sorry for her. It's unfair she must convince you that the biopsy results were the worst-case scenario. Still, you don't believe her. That night when you try saying, I have cancer to your mother, it sounds like a lie. You have spent years studying English, years teaching it, but I have cancer is a sentence your brain does not comprehend, a sentence that belongs to someone else. 
But now you sit on the exam table staring at the hot pink laces in your new sneakers. The doctor hands you a box of Kleenex before walking out of the room as if to say, you should be crying right now. You hold the tissues the way a child holds a box of frozen waffles for her mother who has left the kitchen, wondering when she's coming back. The nurse, who has been in the room the whole time, pats your shoulder and says, you're young, but you're not that young. You push the Kleenex box into the nurse's hands. She sets it on the counter and says she's going to give you a minute to process. The door closes with a soft clunk. Your wilted husband stumbles toward you from the corner where he's been slumped like a rain-soaked scarecrow. He takes you in his arms. He cries into your neck. You rub his back, tell him to breathe. You murmur, since when was 33 not that young? Your husband chuckles. Geez, that would be the one thing you heard. He straightens up, wipes his eyes. Seriously, you say, crossing your arms. I had ice cream for supper last night. Would a not that young person do that? Your husband laughs again, not because it's especially funny, but because after 15 years together, he knows what you need to hear. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, serious heart infections related to drug abuse. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Listening.